If you're a startup and you're spending a lot of money on brand agencies, you're probably going to fail. Just go and build the product, build the service, and go out, knock on people's door, build a kiosk, have a pop-up. Hey, I want you to try my product. What do you think about it? That's the way you build a business is you just start with a product or a service that you believe in and you try to sell it to people who you think will really love it. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. Today on the show, we have Jacob Jaber, the co-founder of Phil's Coffee, a coffee chain with over 70 locations, all of them primarily in California. Phil's is one of the most unique consumer-facing businesses I've ever been to. And if you're listening to this and have been a customer there, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Their unique menu items with amazing coffee drinks and their obvious obsession over customer service and providing a good experience has easily made them one of the most famous coffee brands in California and probably the United States, despite the fact that they're at just around 70 locations. Their service has also landed them free coverage in hit HBO shows like Silicon Valley, which is a true testament to what they've built. Jacob and I talk about what it takes to grow a brick and mortar business, how he thinks about building consumer facing brands. And also even at the end, we talk about what businesses he's been investing in now that he's expanded beyond just working at Phil's. This is a unique episode for my podcast that I think you'll enjoy. Let's tune in. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. Happy employees mean happy customers. Give your employees the best experience with Harry, the platform to solve your turnover, employee engagement, and compliance challenges, all in one place. Prioritize your people, reduce your risk. Visit harry.com today. That's H-A-R-R-I.com. I know you and your father started Phil's. You know, how did that relationship go? You know, it's not too often I find people who kind of start a business with one of their parents. So, you know, what was the genesis of kind of that whole thing? Well, my parents, they grew up in the Middle East and they came to the States like in their mid-teens and typical immigrant story. You know, they really didn't have anything. They came here for opportunity. And, you know, my dad grew up in a place where family, culture, community, they were poor from a, you know, a money standpoint, but they were rich from a community standpoint. So family would gather around every evening over tea, over coffee, over food. They would know all their neighbors. And it was just wonderful. There was, my dad would always call the coffee table, the original social network. So, but there wasn't a lot of opportunity there. So he came to the States and he opened up a little bodega, like a grocery store in the Mission District in San Francisco. And I would help him as a young kid. So at the age of nine years old after school, I would go and help. I'd stand on top of two milk crates and I'd ring people up at the cash register. And that was my, you know, start 
working with my dad. And it was wonderful. I learned a lot. I learned how to count change back to customers without having to look at the cash register. I learned how to stock inventory. I learned how to talk to different customers. And I really didn't like school because I felt like I was forced to learn stuff I wasn't interested in from people who weren't that interesting. So I left. I dropped out. I only went through high school and I left college. And at around the age of 17, the store was transitioning into a coffee shop because my dad really loved coffee and people and the products he was selling didn't really create that sense of community. So it was very organic. And I think it just started by helping, you know, the need to help my dad out in the early days at a young age. And then, you know, I can tell you all about the the pros and cons of working with family, but it's a real blessing. Yeah, that is so fascinating and definitely... You know, there are similarities between kind of these uh, stories where, you know, immigrants come to the U.S. for opportunity and, you know, they really build some impressive companies and, you know, even just kind of like you said, right, spots that consumers really end up growing to love. So, you know, was that Bodega? I'm curious, was that also just called Phil's? No, it was called Gateway Market. Okay. Gateway Market. Yeah. And I don't know how my dad came up with the name, but so he would sell things like milk, eggs, cigarettes, wine. And what was interesting is like he opened that store because he used to work at a store like that. So that's what he knew. And he wanted to have his own business. He wasn't passionate about the products. He was passionate about the people. And he opened that store when there was four other bodegas within a block. And his whole family was like, are you an idiot putting your whole life savings (laughs) into a store when there's so many competitors around it? And he said, the difference is that they're selling products. I'm serving people. And that really led to him building these wonderful relationships with his customers and not being afraid to change the products he was selling to best serve the community at the time. I love the kind of customer service centric approach. Well, I saw on your website or not on your website, just on the Phil's Coffee website, the story, you know, it was about 25 years where the bodega transitioned to the coffee shop fully. Yeah, I mean, was there... Any like, I mean, there usually isn't. It's all, everything's a process is what I've learned. But was there, if there, if you could pick one moment, like, was there a turning point where it's like, you know what, let's go all in on, on a coffee shop concept. Yep. So in the early 2000s was really the birth of Phil's. And it was very organic because my dad, before the 2000s, I think in the 80s, he really thought about wanting to transition to something like a coffee shop because customers would buy product and leave. And he thought, How do I create a place where people stay for a while? How do I create that environment that I grew up in that's kind of lacking here? How do I create a place for people to gather? So he loved coffee. He loved community. So it was just always brewing in his head. And uh, he started experimenting with different beans around the world and different ways to make the coffee and finally found something in the late 90s and then early 2000s. And then he built a little coffee station in the corner of the bodega and he would have his regulars come and try it. It's like, hey, I've been working on something. Can you give me some feedback? Yeah. And they take a sip of it and they, you know, some guy would come and buy a gallon of milk. My dad would talk him into going in the back and trying the coffee. He would try it and be like, this is the shit. This is amazing. <laughs> you should start selling this. And from that point forward, you know, he started selling it. And, you know, I was there by my dad's side working and helping. And around 2003 is when the store was like 20% coffee shop, 80% bodega. So he didn't even sell the liquor license or the tobacco license right away. It took time. 
because he needed to make sure that it was going to be something that that was successful. And we didn't have enough money. So we took furniture from our house and put it in the coffee shop. So my sisters and I would wake up in the morning and be like, where the hell is the breakfast table? It's at the coffee <laughs> shop. But this idea of being resourceful, you know, figuring out how to make something out of nothing, that's the culture of Phil's. And we try to keep that to this day. But I think the turning point wasn't until six years or five years after we started Phil's, where eventually, because it was hard at the beginning, it was not successful. We worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day, hustling, obsessing over customers. And eventually people started telling friends and then lines started to form. And then we got so many complaints that we needed another store. And we were like, we don't know how to do this. You know, how are we going to do another one? Yeah. We eventually did another one. And then it took a little time and then lines began to form. And then we got the same complaints and then another one. So I think every new location in the early days gave us more confidence that, hey, there should be a fills in every community because people love it and people are getting you know good value out of it. And it's enriching the community. It's giving people a place to come and hang and gather and meet other people and have a great cup of coffee. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and the fills you're kind of describing, right, with like lines and people wanting to go and wanting possibly more. I mean, I've been that customer and there probably are people listening to this that, you know, maybe haven't been to California or just haven't been to a fills in California where you guys primarily, you know, where that business is primarily located. But, you know, the experience you get there and, you know, all the different coffee flavors. I mean, I get fast forward to, you know, what you think of how you guys did things and how you built it. Right. I mean, you know, it really has become a community center, like especially known within like that's called the tech world. So even as far as to say the popular show Silicon Valley, every time they met, you know, had a meeting at a coffee shop, it was Phil's every single time. Did you intentionally target that community or did that happen organically kind of just from the broad based focus of, you know, we're trying to recreate this community aspect here within our coffee shop? Yeah, it's a good question. And it was organic completely because, you know, our, we weren't trying to create a Silicon Valley vibe within our store. We just happened to be born in Silicon Valley and all of our customers were, you know, engineers, founders, entrepreneurs, and they started falling in love with Phil's. And for the show, actually, we didn't like pay to be on that show. They asked us for product. No way. Yeah, no. So no, not at all. We didn't do any of that. They really wanted to feature Phil's because in reality in Silicon, that's what it's like. So you can go and walk into a Phil's in Palo Alto or another one of our stores in the Bay Area, and you will see founders pitching investors. You'll see investors having meetings. You'll see entrepreneurs quoting and building their first business. Ryan Hoover of Product Hunt built Product Hunt out of Phil's. And he's amazing. He has a great story. So there's just a lot of fun stories like that. And I think it just happened very organically. And we didn't focus on that. We focused on the coffee and the customer. We wanted to make sure people had a great cup of coffee and great hospitality. And that, you know, it just happened on its own. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, I think you guys really have that. You have that intangible brand affinity. Like, it's really hard to, well, like one, you can't do it overnight. You know, people always talk about like building a moat in, in a business, right? And you can do that maybe with like a tech product, right? If you do invent some type of proprietary technology, that's like a quantifiable, tangible moat. But being just that brand that everyone loves and it's like that, it's known as the meeting spot. 
you can't just do that on day one. So yeah, I'm just curious for your thoughts on like, when you think about building a consumer facing brand, I mean, anything you learned from the Phil's journey that can almost just to build that brand affinity, really? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And I meet a lot of founders who, you know, want to build great things. And I guess in the consumer world, it's hard. It takes time. Yeah. I think one of the most important things is authenticity. You know, people really resonate with authentic stories. You know, there's a reason why we created what we created. You know, we really believed it in our hearts and our souls. And we served it directly to the customers, you know, and that resonates. So I think you have to have a purpose. You have to have a story. There needs to be authenticity. And I would say, even if you had the best product in the world and you had the most authentic story, it still takes time. Yeah. Good things take time and you have to have the patience. And when you're in the consumer world, you have to really think longer term and not try to go so fast because things don't happen overnight. And if they do, they can fall quickly as well. Yeah. So I think you just got to focus on building something truly great. And the more passionate you are about it, the more excited you are about what you're doing, the better, because it's going to feel less like work and more like play. And that was the wonderful thing. Every time we worked in the store, my dad and I had so much fun because we loved hospitality. You know, we'd go so far as learning all of our customers' names, a little bit about their families, a little bit about where they work. We give them samples to go take back to the office so we can get more people to experience it. We find out the names of their children and their favorite treats. So when they came in and they brought their kids in the morning before they dropped them off school, we'd know that, you know, John's daughter loved a chocolate cupcake. So we'd go and get a chocolate cupcake with a candle turn off the music in the cafe and sing happy birthday. No way. So we just really had so much fun creating like memorable experiences. And you just, every day we just did that. We just focused on the customer. We had fun and we weren't in any type of rush. We didn't have any particular objective about opening a second or third store. We just wanted to do a great job every day. And every day there's more and more customers slowly. It took many years for us to get lines of customers coming in regularly. So you have to create something that you really love. And if you really love it, then it's a good chance that you're going to get other people to love it. And, you know, you just build from there. I can see that the authenticity, especially, right? Like if someone's walking into a store, especially the first time for any consumer facing product or service, yeah, I mean, the passion and the authenticity, you know, if it is from like in your guys' case, you know, you and your father, the founders of the business and the family, that can really just rub off on the customer in a good way. So I remember a story, if I can, when we had our second store, it was not that busy yet in the early days. So I asked my dad, I said, hey, dad, you know, it's the store is not that busy. You know, do you have any suggestions on how to grow it? I asked other people too. They said, oh, you should create flyers. You should create pamphlets. You should go out in the community. And I asked my dad and he said, he came by the store on a Saturday and there was quite a few customers sitting in the living room, having their coffee, doing their work. And he told me to stand in the middle of the store and do a 360. But as I'm doing a 360, do it slowly and look at every customer as you're doing it and ask yourself, how many of them do you know? Not just their name, but how many of them do you actually know? 
And I was a little nervous to do that and embarrass myself in front of like 20, 30 customers in the cafe doing a 360 in the store, just looking at them. But he said, just do it. So we literally, he watched me, we did it. And I turned and at the end of it, he said, okay, what percentage of people do you know sitting at your coffee shop right now? I said, oh, probably about a quarter, like 25, 30% more or less. He said, shut up, stop complaining about your business. You have work to do. Go build more relationships. Why don't you know 90%? So yeah. sometimes the answers are right in front of you. And we try to find answers that can give us quick results. But the truth is you got to work at it. You got to work at it every day. You got to water the plants. You got to build and nourish relationships. So I made it my mission to get to know every single customer. And the better I knew the customers, the better I can serve them. And the higher the likely that they're going to become evangelist and they're going to tell a friend. So I figured out instead of going to create flyers, let me create relationships and let me do that really well. And over time, all of our traffic came from customers, friends and family members, and people would just spread the word so much. So on our cups, we put something that says, tell a friend. So I think good things happen to good people and good products, and it has to be really good it has to be real and you have to really obsess over your customers. I think it's very, very important. I walk into retail stores today or places and employees don't welcome customers and it just baffles me. It's like, what up? You'd be so grateful for the customer that's taking time out of the day to come into your store. Wow, that's wonderful. Go meet them. Yeah. You know, introduce yourself. So you really got to take the opportunity to connect with your customers and get to know them. Now, if the product sucks, it's not going to work. The product has to be really good. <laughs> yeah. But once the product is really good and you love it and you believe in it, you really just got to put your energy on the customer. And today, right? I mean, so you, Phil's has uh, roughly 70 locations, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're getting 75, 80, 80 stores. We're nearing that. Yeah. But it's one at a time. So people say, where do you want Phil's to go? Yeah. Instead of thinking about like, oh, we want to open a thousand stores. I think one store, 1000 times you have to earn it. Yeah. An employee asked me a question a few years back. I was doing a little talk with the team and she said, why can't we open more stores? I said, we have to earn it. We have to earn it one at a time. So if you do a good job with your next new store and you're treating people well, customers are coming back, you earn the right to open the next store. So you can't forget where you came from. And you can't let big get in the way of personal and great. So the retail, the store business is a local business. It's not a global business. Every single store, no matter the business you are, is serving a community. You better focus and invest in that community and get to know those customers. And, uh, you know, if you do that, like I say, I think great things will come, particularly if you're a newer brand, it's table stakes. For sure. Yeah, I completely agree. You really got to put that time and energy in. Wow. Well, I mean, I was going to ask, have you been approached about franchises? Did you ever think about it? But based on everything I've learned already, I can just tell that that method of expansion, it doesn't seem to align, let's say from a cultural perspective, because you get national interest. If you did it today, right? You probably have applications ranging from Florida, all like everywhere around the country who would be applying for this. Yeah, maybe so. I think for us, culture is really important. The customer experience is important. If we do that, the returns are really good. So why give away those returns over the long term when you can do it yourself? 
Yeah, fair enough. And it's interesting. I mean, do you mind just, can you walk through kind of the experience? If I walk into a Phil's, you know, and I've only been a few times because I'm typically an East Coast person, but it's like this, uh, the way this is the way I'm describing it, but like it's this one-to-one barista model almost when they're making your coffee and they're asking you specific questions and you have so many great options for flavoring the coffee. And I mean, I'm usually a black coffee person, iced black coffee every time. Phil's is like the only spot on planet Earth where I'll get something else beyond just black coffee. So yeah, can you kind of just explain like what, for people who are listening to this who have no idea what it's all about, you know, just what is it like to get a coffee there? Yep. So first off, the menu is very unique. So you see a multitude of blends, the darker blends, medium blends, lighter blends, and then there's featured creations. So all of these blends were unique blends, secret recipe blends created by my dad. He put them together over a long period of time, and they're all very delicious, and there's something for everyone. And if you order the coffee, there's no condiment stand. We do it all for you. So if you want milk or cream or almond, whatever you want in your coffee, we do it for you. We put it on the table, and we say, take a sip to make sure it's perfect. So we're really making the coffee to your taste. And the featured creations have a unique drinks on them, like the mint mojito, It's fresh muddled mint with some brown sugar and some cream and coffee, but you can customize it, but you should get it the house way. That's the best way. (laughs) And it's just absolutely delicious. And you would, whoever think like, oh, mint and coffee, but it's so good. And yeah, there's just a lot of unique drinks on the menu. So that's one thing. The fact that we do it all for you, it's full service. That's the next thing. Before COVID, you would actually go up to the barista, order your drink, talk with them, and they'd personalize it for you. And then you'd go and pay and then you'd pick it up back from your barista. Today, we shifted it during COVID and today it's still like that. You order from the cash register with the person they can help you figure out what you like. And then when it's ready, your name will be called up and you go to the barista that's making it and they'll ask you to take a sip, see if you want any adjustments. So it's a very personal experience and you're not just being handed a cup, you're being given a product that we want to really make sure you're happy with. Yeah, it is a personal experience. That That's exactly it, right? I don't know of another business that does that. Yeah, and it's fascinating. I haven't seen anyone that does that, right? And I kind of, I mean, from a franchise perspective, I, I literally basically cover franchises for a living. <laughs> but, you know, there's drive-through coffees, like all the, it's hard from a coffee perspective. Yeah, like why has, you think it, someone hasn't kind of like directly competed with, that, and even we can talk outside of coffee too. I mean, just, it's rare to see that level of personalization for a retail business. You know, what was interesting in the early days, I'll answer the question, but in the early days, you're thinking about how do you design the operation of your new concept? You know, how do you structure it? We didn't think about any of that. The only thing we thought about was how do we design the perfect cup of coffee, one cup at a time for each person? So what happened was that when customers would walk in, they came straight to us. It's like a bar. And we talked with them. We figured out what they liked and we made their coffee. And then we got to know them. You know, as we're making their coffee, they're like, hey, where do I pay? We didn't even think about that. It's like, oh, actually, you do have to pay for that. You go over there. So (laughs) we really designed the experience and then built the operation to support that experience versus design the operation and then try to fit the experience in. So I think that was absolutely uh, important 
because it created that personalization. But I think to answer your question, it's hard. It's very difficult. It's not easy. You got to have a hospitality culture. You got to have great people. It's expensive, takes more time. You know, we're putting a lot more time and energy into each cup. So, you know, I think it's hard. We all know that when employees are happy, so are your customers. If you want to provide the best experience for your employees, you need Harry. Harry is the platform. Founded by a restaurateur, Harry solves turnover, employee engagement, and compliance all in one place. Set your team up for success and join over 50,000 restaurants and hotels around the world. Put your people first and visit harry.com for a free demo. That's H-A-R-R-I.com. There's some quote, I forget who said it. I think it was Danny Meyer about just like when we think of multi-unit retail businesses that scaling flavor per se, you know, it's still difficult, but it's much easier than scaling hospitality. And like McDonald's is kind of this first brand, one franchising, you know, they scale flavor, right? From California to, you know, New York, you go to McDonald's, it's probably going to taste exactly the same wherever you are, which is a great accomplishment. But then the customer service you get in each store, I mean, that is going to vary most likely pretty heavily. And, you know, so scaling that experience, right, is very difficult. And, you know, I'm curious for, you know, I don't know how much you've even looked at, let's say, well, I think the way we ended up, I ended up reaching out to you is you tweeted about Chick-fil-A, right? They have ridiculously high average unit volumes, you know, it was like eight and a half million this past year. Nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And they're known for their hospitality, right? Yep. So, yeah, I mean, just any thoughts on kind of their model, you know, like, yeah, I've thought about it. So number one, product has to be really good. Yep. Product wasn't good. It's not going to work. Like you could have the best hospitality in the world. If the product is not good, it's not going to work. Yeah. You can have the best product in the world and the worst hospitality. It might still work. But if you have the best product in the world and the best hospitality, you're just increasing your odds of success. You're creating strength. You know, I think Chick-fil-A is got multiple things going for it. Number one, People really love the product. It's not meat, it's chicken-based, so it's perceived as healthier, perhaps. I think that their locations are really good and they're all drive-through and drive-throughs typically do really good because Americans love (laughs) drive-throughs. You don't need to get out of the car. It's pretty convenient. I think their operating model is really unique. One of the hardest positions in food and beverage to hire for is the store manager. You know, it's like, the secret is once you have a good product, is like, find me a hundred great locations and a hundred great store managers. Bam, I have a hundred great businesses. You know, that's great. That's very difficult to do. So finding a store manager with an owner mindset that's incentivized to make customers happy, do the product right, do the hospitality right, do the business right, is one of the most important ingredients to success. And I think Chick-fil-A has figured out that model is... How do you find 100 owner operators who have that mindset, who are focused on their business versus going out and doing a bunch of other things, I think is really, really important. I would attribute a lot of Phil's success and especially the early days due to the fact that my dad and I lived in the stores. Yeah. The owners lived in the stores. And when a cup dropped on the floor, a nine set cup, 
which is probably 12 cents now or 13 cents, <laughs> but a nine set cup, we got pissed, you know, and an employee inherently doesn't have that same, you know, cup drops off the floor up, they pick it up and throw it away. Doesn't mean they don't care, but they didn't pay for that. Yeah. So you have to figure out how do you create an environment that has an owner mindset? That's really important from a cultural standpoint. And then practically speaking, you have to figure out how to incentivize people on the most important dimensions, right? So if product is the most important thing to you, you need to tie pay to product quality and execution. If hospitality is the most important thing to you, you got to tie their pay to hospitality. If profitability is the most important thing, you got to tie it to profitability. And I think any food and beverage brand needs to focus on three dimensions and they need to be very careful about it. They need to incentivize people on product, product quality, hospitality quality, and sustainable profitability. Not gaming the system, but sustainable profitability. And I think that if a majority of your pay is tied to those three things, that's one piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle is building that culture. And culture is really interesting because it's like kneading dough. You know, you are your environment and this applies to everything in the world. Like we are, you know, what do they say? Your five or 10 friends, or, you know, show me your friends and I'll show you. That's very much true. And that's culture is you are your environment. So if you create an environment where, you know, something is so important and you're actually living those behaviors every day, people are going to follow along. So the cup example. So when I used to work in the store and a cup fell on the floor, I used to be pissed about it. You know, I used to be loud about it. It's like, damn, hey guys, we just wasted 10 cents. Let's say that happens 10 times a day at a hundred stores. How much do you think that cost? How do you feel like if somebody took that from your bank account? Man, so people are going to be a little bit more mindful about the cups, but it can't just be one time. It has to be every day. Oh, and then a customer walks in. I go out of my way as the owner to welcome them. Come on in. How are you? And then I, I encourage the employees to do that. If you just work on those things every day, you're starting to define and create the cultural norms, and then hopefully people follow on. Yeah. But the risk is that owners don't spend time in their stores all the time. It's too hard when you have a lot of stores. So you get to figure out how to create an environment where people are able to have that owner mindset and do that in all the stores. So it's very difficult, but it's magical when it happens. Yeah, there's so much good lessons there, especially at, at the way you're thinking about product and hospitality. I hear you. There's so many examples of it in, in and outside of, uh, you know, restaurants, right? That the product at the end of the day has to be good. I remember uh, listening to a podcast. I used to be obsessed with all, I mean, actually, I still wear all birds all the time, but I used to be like obsessed with them and, and direct to consumer as a category. And the, the founder said on one podcast that, you know, their whole thing from the start was, Hey, like we're a uh, much more sustainably sourced, you know, shoe. We're not like Nike or Adidas or these other companies that are using these other bad resources to make our shoes. And they said they completely bombed the first six months to a year. I don't even know. And nobody gave a crap about their mission, basically, because the shoes were not comfortable. Then they were like, okay, we got to really reinvest in the shoe. And then, you know, I that's why I loved it, because it felt like, you know, you got, it felt like pillows on my feet for the first time. <laughs> And the fatter said, oh, all of a sudden, when the shoe happened to be really comfortable, then everyone started loving my mission, which I just think is a really interesting kind of switch that occurs, right? Once you yeah. 
really like the product, all of a sudden the amplification and that kind of organic growth can happen. Yep. You know, whether you like Teslas or not, Tesla cars or not, there's people that like them. There's people that don't like them. You know, why do you think people who buy Teslas buy Teslas? Yeah. So I'm curious for your takes on brands. I think it's a, a lot of brand association. It helps say who people, who you are, right? Because you drive a Tesla versus something else. Not to say that the environmental impacts aren't necessarily at the core, but it's also this cool, sexy car brand that I think people want to be associated with. So do people buy Teslas because it's an electric car or do people buy Teslas because it's a great car? Do people buy Teslas because of Elon Musk? I don't know exactly the answer, but my belief is that first and foremost, people buy a Tesla because they think it's a great car that happens to be electric versus I buy Tesla because then it's electric car and it's a good car. So your point about Allbirds and you know, the same thing, it's, yeah, it has to be better. I meet so many founders of food and beverage startups who are creating better for you products that are not delicious. If it's not delicious, it's not going to work. You know, and whether you like it or not, the mass, the majority of people want something great. You have to make something better. And if you could, you got to focus on better and then you be, should be able to say, oh, and it's better for you. So better deliciousness, better taste, and it's better for you. That's compelling. It's not compelling to say this is better for you. Oh, and it's on parody. It's pretty good. It has to be better on multiple dimensions. Yeah, it's so tough. And then there's the whole question of 2x better, 1x better. So if something is 10 times better for you and two times better than everything else, that's really good position. Yep. But it's not enough defense. So you got to keep working at figuring out how you can win on other dimensions. And this is the game of strategy. You have to be significantly better on multiple dimensions. Let's go to brand though, because like you, you've spoken about how important authenticity is and that really has to show through. And, you know, again, so just with Phil's, you guys kind of became this community for the tech industry, let's say. But you as like, you know, one of the people building that business, would you recommend that founders strategically build their brand for the community, let's say, that they resonate most with? And I'll caveat that with just like a quick example, right? To show what I mean by like the power of brand, right? So for instance, Heineken, Mercedes, Lululemon, that's one person. Like one person drinks Heineken, drives a Mercedes, wears Lululemon. The other person, Sam Adams, Ford, L.L. Bean. I'm sure if people are listening to this and imagining the, the person, those are two different people that they're picturing in their head, right? One's maybe a, a New England kind of blue collar, rougher around the edges type of person. The other's this, you know, upper middle class to maybe wealthy, you know, a corporate person or, or who knows. So that's the power, though, that brands really have, right? The fact that they can actually you associate different people with them. So yeah, I mean, how do you think about building a brand, especially when it relates to like, for instance, what if you guys were more trying to be, build a community of like Dunkin' Donuts kind of has that blue collar New England vibe and it was started in England. But yeah, what if you didn't align with this tech kind of crowd that ended up being such a core customer of Phil's? You know, that's my ask, constructing the brand and how you think about it from a founder perspective. 
I think this is a really good question and you laid it out really nicely. If I could pick on like, you know, Sam Adams or Ford, if you go back to the founding days of those brands, do you think that the founders said, I want to create a brand? I don't think so. I think maybe what they thought about was, I want to serve this customer or I want to create this product. So same with us. You can't start with a brand. The brand happens. You have to start with a product or a service. And you can define a customer type. You can focus on certain customer types. That's fine. You have to start with a product or a service for people. And that's where you start. And then the brand happens after that. Yeah. So that's my sense. And you know, the what is a brand, right? A brand is your feeling. It's your perception of, of something. And the story of a brand in one's head is constantly being adjusted based on the touch points you have. So you see a commercial, there's a reinforcement, right? So, and typically it's all the bigger brands because their whole job is to maintain the positive perception of their brand. So many commercials are paying for defense, the big brands, especially not offense, they're paying for defense. Like Coca-Cola has to play defense and keep that positive perception. But I, I think you just got to keep it simple. If you're a startup and you're spending a lot of money on brand agencies, you're probably going to fail. Like, just go and build the product, build the service, and go out, knock on people's door, build a kiosk, have a pop-up. Yeah. Hey, I want you to try my product. What do you think about it? That's the way you build a business is you just start with a product or a service that you believe in and you try to sell it to people who you think will really love it. And then you learn and then you iterate. And learn and iterate. And you just keep doing that over time. And, uh, you know, that's how you build the brand. That's that's what I believe. I mean, it's great insight. But, I mean, it completely just aligns with how you said Phil's developed in that whole story. So, yeah, wow, that's great feedback, I think, for everyone, right? Focus on the product and service. And if you do that well, the brand just comes naturally. Sounds like. Well, let's think about Chick-fil-A. So, what, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. What? I think Chick-fil-A is starting to do a little like advertising commercials, but it's not big. I'm not up to speed on that. But what's the Chick-fil-A brand in your from your point of view? Oh, that's uh, <laughs> funny. I Because anytime I tweet about Chick-fil-A, I see both sides of it. I mean, I think there's product, amazing. Like people just think, oh, what are some of the best chicken sandwich? Like the best chicken sandwich, right? So people love the product. Yeah. And just because I'm a franchise nerd, I know the story that they started with back in 1967. And that that was the core product that they built the whole business around. They didn't add other menu items for decades, right? But not even years, decades. So product down. And yes, that and service, customer service. You know, like I've seen viral YouTube videos and viral TikToks of people like, you know, going overboard with customer service. And it's like a joke on Chick-fil-A because like that's how well known they are for customer service. So that's what it is to me in my head. I know there's obviously, you know, I kind of have to just obviously touch on it that the founders or the founding family has gotten called out for, they've donated to anti-LGBTQ campaigns and things like that, which has gotten them a lot of negative press. But as we said earlier with the, um, with how this, how you and I got in touch was from your tweet about Chick-fil-A's average revenue per location. And that Regardless of negative press, good press, it that's been going up for a long time in up and to the right. And so, yeah, to me, to summarize, I guess it's everyone thinks they got damn good chicken and they are going to take care of you and have a smile on their face and thank you 
for basically your business. Yep. Yeah. It's funny because I think like brands are a story that always have an edit button, right? It's like an edit button. You know, the story gets edited for you based on your touch points with the brand. You see a TikTok video, you see, you know, and it's just, it, you know, you see something on the news and it just starts to shape the story in a unique way. So, but the power of a great product, a convenient location, affordable product, good customer service is very powerful, despite negative touch points that may happen over time, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, because you're right. I mean, they've had national campaigns against them. And you're right. It is clearly still all those other things you named. It's overpowering it because the dollars don't lie yep. right at the end of the day. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's fascinating. I mean, yeah, people vote with their dollars. It's so funny because like people will stay stuff on one thing and it's just there's so much moral signaling that has just gone. It's crazy. I just think like, you know, if you like something, you should go and do it. And if you don't, you shouldn't. And you should respect people no matter what they like or what they don't like. You know, just give people, give humans respect. But, you know, yeah, we could we could go down that rabbit hole. But I think this conversation around brand is a good one and an important one. But it always starts with the product or the service that you're creating. Absolutely. I think this is uh, going to be really helpful for a lot of franchise or founders that, that probably listen to this. And, you know, I want to talk about, so you've got more going on than just your association with Phil's. I know you do some investing in consumer-focused companies, you know, and along the lines of great products and customer service. You know, is that a core almost thesis to what you're doing on the angel investing side? Yeah, I have a criteria. And my, it's at a high level. It's, it's very simple. It's I believe in different and better. So it's not good enough to be different and it's not good enough to be better. Because if you're just better and you're not different you don't have enough defensibility. If you're just different and you're not better, it's not going to work. Now, if you're a little bit different and a lot better, that's a good place to be. If you're extremely different and you're a little bit better, you're still a little vulnerable. So whenever I think about products or services, consumer space, food and beverage technology, I'm always thinking about different and better because I think you got to figure out how to win on both dimensions, better being the more important one but they're both very important. So different and better. So that's the filter. That's like the macro filter I'm thinking about. And then when I just look at specific companies, I focus on what I understand. I focus on the people. I focus on the potential of the product or the service. And the price has to be right. Those are the four things. So different and better. And then I evaluate the companies based on those four criteria. And I struggle to say consumer investor because people automatically think, oh, consumer packaged goods, you know, a new ketchup or a new ready to drink product. That's the a very low focus, even though that is something, those are products I'll look at. When I think about consumer, I think about products or services that touch people, that people use. It could be a workforce. It could be a software for hourly employees. It could be repair and maintenance software, you know, I understand those things. It could be a new food concept. It could be a consumer technology. It could be health and fitness. So I play in all of those things, but the most important thing is I understand it. Like I'm not going to invest in semiconductors or, you know, pharma or anything like that because I don't understand those things. So you have to invest in what you understand. That is the most important thing because if you understand it, 
A, you can evaluate it. B, you can actually help the founders. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, along those lines, is there any specific space that you're particularly watching? You know, you got, I mean, speaking of things that people don't understand, you know, Twitter the last month has been artificial intelligence everywhere. Uh, and yep. who knows what's, what's going to end up happening there. But, you know, like I know, I think you invested in Gusto and, and Mind Zero, you know, uh, and a few others, but yeah, any sector that you're just looking at or, um, any of these specific portfolio companies that, uh, you think are relevant to what we've been discussing? Yeah, there's quite a few. We have about like 25 companies in the portfolio roughly. So one of the things I've been thinking about quite a bit is this concept of transformational versus incremental. Why is Elon Musk special? Because he's solving transformational problems, you know, space transport, electric uh, vehicles. And I really want to figure out how to spend more time on transformational ideas. So I think AI is a transformational idea. However, it's important to note that AI is a tool. It's not a solution. It's a very powerful tool that can be applied in many ways, but you still got to solve a problem. And now you have the luxury of having this powerful tool to help you solve the problem. So there's a lot of noise and activity in AI, and I think it's worthy of it because of how powerful it is. So I think AI is transformational, but I'm more focused on the problem than I am on AI. Yeah. I like to know that problem could be solved really significantly better with AI, and I want to know that they're using AI. But here's a question for you is, does the world need a better burger? I think about that. You know, part of me from, you know, well, you know, my computer community, I would like it, but you know, it's good. It's, it's always good to have a better burger or a better salad or a better, but that's incremental. That's not transformational. No, I mean, for sure. Yeah. I think, do we need one? No, I would like one, <laughs> but I don't think, yeah, I would like one too. Yeah. But then it brings me back to a quote. So there's a quote I, and I have to think more about, I think about this quote often, but it's, this guy that says, I forgot who it is. There is no innate meaning to life, but that doesn't mean life is meaningless. You have to find your project. So that was very interesting. Whether you're religious or not religious, it doesn't matter. It's worth thinking about that. It's like, there, he says, there is no innate meaning in life. Life is meaningless, or, but that doesn't mean life is not meaningless, yeah. but you have to find your project. And if you look at the world today, Versus hundreds of years ago, we've advanced so much. Now, there are people who are left behind and we got to figure out how to help them and give them the tools. And yeah, we want everybody to be in a good place, right? We need to keep working. We got a lot of work to do there. With that said, we've solved a lot of problems and it's been remarkable. Yep. Right. So I'm really interested in this idea of what's transformational versus incremental. So I, I don't have a good answer to your question. Uh, I know I'm going all over the place, but I like big ideas. But I also like small ideas because, you know, if you can make something better for someone, even though it's not transformational, it's still good. So it's a good framework to think about things. It's tr what's transformational versus what's incremental? It is. And it's funny. Uh, I used to be, I mean, I, I still like it. I just don't have as much time as I used to, to watch uh, Shark Tank. And one of them said, he's Cuban. Or Love that show. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I think it maybe it leads to some succession, like bias, because all you see a for the most part, the, the deals that go through. But 
Anyway, that's neither here nor there. My point is, is that Damon at one point, I think he made the point or kind of just a statement that he felt like pretty much like so many of what you're kind of talking about, like transformational businesses is, which I don't agree with what he said, but he said that the 90 or 95% of the businesses they're looking at investing in, they're just improvements on existing things. It's that incremental business yep. versus it's rare to come across sort of these transformational businesses. And it seems like it's more and more rare. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I hear of, uh, or see, I mean, I wish I could think of a few off the top of my head, but I feel like every week I discover a different business that was founded in like the 60s or 70s. And it's like, oh, they just make the part for like this, you know, they make some widget that goes on a train or this or that. And it's like, oh, well, that's amazing. But like, you can't just do that business today. Like it's kind of, well, this, the invention of the steam engine was transformational, which enabled all of these things. Right. So that's, that's your point. Yeah, it's interesting though. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Think about SpaceX. Yeah. Like making it affordable to, to travel to space. Think about over time, that's transformational. What is that going to do? Yeah. How many industries is that going to open up? How many new products and services will be created? I don't know the answer to that, but that feels transformational because it unlocks a ton of things. Yep. Like the engine unlocked a ton of things. The internet unlocked a ton of things. These are transformational ideas. You know, a better software for, you know, something that's better than QuickBooks might be better. And by the way, if you're passionate about a better burger or a better QuickBooks, you should go out and create that. And that could yeah. be a great business. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're an investor or you're an entrepreneur, it's worth thinking things through the lens of transformational versus incremental. Because if you could marry your personal passion with something that's transformational, you should go work on that. I completely agree. I think it's a great framework for anyone in the business building or investing kind of world to, to, to think about. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. And um, yeah, look, Jacob, this has been a ton of fun, really good conversation. You know, is there anywhere online where people can follow along you, uh, any of the businesses you're investing in or anything like that? Yeah, I think Twitter uh, is probably the best place. It's at Jacob Jaber, J-A-C-O-B-J-A-B-E-R. And then my LinkedIn as well. Those are probably good places to connect. So feel free to, you know, reach out to me on Twitter or, you know, I'll do my best to engage and interact. It's a fun place to be. That's how we met. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's good stuff. All right. Well, yeah, we'll plug his Twitter handle in the show notes, folks. And yeah, if you're not on Twitter, get on Twitter. It's a good time. You learn a lot of things. It's not as serious and stuffy as LinkedIn. So definitely recommend it. But yeah, thanks again, Jacob. And we'll uh, hopefully talk soon. All right, man. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Listen.